your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2. I want to begin by just giving you context again in a biblical worldview and an understanding of what God is doing um, at this point in world history as we go back literally 3,500 years approximately, 3,500 years, and as we think about what he's doing in our lives today. So this is not unrelated. This is not, we're not looking back to go, this is really interesting stuff God did historically among the Israelite people as he was calling them to himself and developing a nation. But what does that, it has nothing to do with us today. No, it has everything to do with us today. And so there are some, um, now we don't practice Levitical offerings in the same way. There's five offerings, the beginning of Leviticus. We're not um, killing animals and throwing them on a literal fire to, to burn them, to appease the wrath of God. Jesus has been our has satisfied that. But the more you understand these things, the more we step back and go, whoa, this is really incredible. That God has preserved his word, that there is a unifying theme and thread of redemption and of the gospel all the way from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation that that flows through over 1,500 years of people writing the word of God under the inspiration and leadership of God's spirit different people that didn't know each other, 30 plus different authors writing over 1,500 years, most of them not being contemporaries of, of one another. And yet this story beautifully weaves together, beautifully comes together to give this clear vision of God's redemptive work in history. God is in the business of redeeming for himself, purchasing for himself out of all the nations of the world, a people for himself to know him, to live in fellowship with him, that he would be their God, that they would be his people and to declare and make him known to the ends of the earth until Jesus is going to come back and establish his rule and reign and bring judgment and come back for his people to bring all of creation to culmination at that point. That we're waiting for that moment. When's it going to happen? I don't know. It could happen today. What has to happen for that to happen? Nothing else needs to happen for that to happen. We're just waiting for that moment. But until that time, what do we need to do? And what has God done in biblical history? And what can we learn from this? And so, to go back to Genesis, you have the, God makes everything perfect. Man rebels against him and there's the fall in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Creation, Genesis chapter 3, rejection the fall. And then Adam and Eve have kids, and their children are born with sinful natures. And so at the fall, God judges them, casts them out of the garden, and says, okay, you're cut off from me, and you will now die one day, and you're going to be born with a sinful nature. There's going to be conflict and and disorder in the world because of your rebellion, because you chose to do life apart from me. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be judgment. And he cuts them off from the garden and sends them out, but he covers them, covers them. Everybody say, covers. Now, everybody say, atonement. Atonement. An atonement is a covering, and he provides a covering of animal skins by the shedding of blood. You can't get skin off of an animal apart from killing the animal, ideally. And, and uh, well, you're going to kill the animal in the process. And so he skins an animal, kills an animal, skins an animal, provides covering for their sin. And it's to give us a beginning picture of what it means to, to have the, what, the importance of the blood atonement, the covering for our sins. So I'm going to use that word several times, atonement. And whenever you hear atonement, I want you to think Blood covering. It covers our sins. When God looks at the law, 
when he looks at the law in our lives, it's not meant to beat us, okay? It's meant to measure us, to help us see that we don't measure up and we are in need of his grace and we're in need of a covering so that God doesn't judge us for what we rightfully deserve and that's death for violating his ways and his holy, perfect character. But yet he shows us our need for him and then he provides a covering for our sins. And so Genesis chapter 4, you have two young lads, Cain and Abel. And they both had different strengths, different weaknesses. Abel spent his time farming uh, with animals. And Cain spent his time gardening and growing crops and different things. Nothing wrong with either of those. But they bring an offering to the Lord. And one brings an offering of blood and, and the best of his um, herds. And the other one brings an offering of his produce and god rejects cain's offering but he accepts abel's offering and cain gets mad about that god graciously pursues cain and says cain it's not a problem you can be right with me all you have to do is adjust what you brought you just need to change you just need to do it different but your problem isn't abel your problem is me and you have not rightfully interacted with me you haven't tried to approach me in a Um, in a right way through the blood and so he rejects cain's offering cain gets mad and instead of adjusting repenting and adjusting his life he reveals what's going on in his heart kills his brother kills his brother and then uh the story continues man continues to be sinful um wicked doing what's right in his own eyes massively populating the earth god brings judgment in the flood And then after the flood, Noah and his family, his sons, begin to populate the earth again. And God has a remnant of of just a few that know him. And they begin to populate the earth. But then they start to turn off because of sinful natures, away from God, build a tower to God. And God judges them again by scattering them throughout the earth and changing their language. And so now they're scattered out the earth. Now one day we're going to go to heaven and there's going to be people at the banquet table from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so God is in the process of redeeming, fixing what man has messed up through his incredible wisdom. He is redeeming a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's going to bring them into a right relationship with him, and they're going to dwell with God forever. And so what we messed up, God's going to bring full circle to bring salvation and restoration. And so now we're in the middle of that, looking at Leviticus as God has now called the people, called Abraham out. And Abraham's descendants now have grown into this mighty nation of 2.5, 3 million maybe people. And they're in the wilderness. God has just given them his law and he's given them the tabernacle where they can worship him. And this is what the tabernacle looks like. They're encamped at the base of Mount Sinai, all of the 12 tribes around, surrounding. And you have the tabernacle tent where God is going to set up his residence and his presence in the middle of the nation. And so in a, over a span of a year, he gives them the book of Exodus and the law and the covenants and instructions for the tabernacle and all the parts of the tabernacle, which the brazen altar was a significant part of that, and they build it. And so here's what it looked like built. And so you go in the front gate right here with your sacrifice, and there you're confronted by this bronze or brazen altar of which this is a replica of it and when you're confronted by it you are confronted with the wrath of god that burns continually towards sin you weren't here the last couple weeks the fire on the altar was set by god it was holy fire from god 
came out from the tabernacle and then consumed the offering on there, lit the fire, and they were to keep that same fire going continuously and never, ever let it go out. And it continued to burn all the way until Solomon's temple was built 500 years later. And so the first thing they were to do each morning and at the end of each day was to bring a burnt offering, a blood offering. And then we have in Leviticus 2, the second offering they would bring to God. And it was called a grain offering or some of your translation might be a little heading. It might say a meat offering or a meal offering. And by meat, it means um, not necessarily um, flesh. It means meat as in uh, there's a substance to it. It's, it's the produce of, of uh, it's, it's a food offering, but not flesh and blood. It's, it's the produce of their work in grain, specifically flour. And so in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1, we read, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, <clears throat> put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a food offering pleasing, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's offering. When you bring the grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves, of fine flour with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened. Mixed with oil, you shall break it into pieces, pour it on it, pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the offering the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the Lord, you shall, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take it, take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's portion offering. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt, and you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of the first fruits, fresh ears of grain, roasted and with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall 
put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. All right, so what is the deal with all these different offerings? What is the significance of these offerings? So let me go through the passage, make some comments, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about the imagery and the significance of each of these things. So first of all, they're to bring an offering to the Lord. Here's what it looks like at night. Pretty cool. The grain offering. An offering is prepared, verses 1 through 3. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it speaks of the bringing this offering before the Lord of fine flour. So it speaks of it, the purity of this offering. It's to have fine flour, fine ground, pure, uh, sifted, clean flour. The best you got, bring the best flour you have, and that's what you bring the portion to the Lord and to the priest. You're going to bring the best flour you have. It gets a picture of, of purity. Secondly, you're going to pour oil over it. Thirdly, he's going to take this offering and he's going to place frankincense. There's going to be some frankincense mixed with it, which is going to create a pleasant, fragrant aroma when it's burnt up. It's an incense. It's a spice. And it's going to, it's going to make a beautiful aroma, which, again, we'll talk about more in a moment. So it's pure with oil mixed with frankincense. The other thing we want to note is that the priest is going to have a portion. So part of it's going to be brought and it's going to be placed on the altar. The other part is going to be brought and it's going to be given to the priest. So verse 3, it says, Put the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, and it is the most holy part of the Lord's offering. So what's happening here is the Levites as a tribe, this tribe of priests, their job is to minister on behalf of the other 11 tribes between them and God. And so as they're doing the um, ongoing ministry of the tabernacle and the tent and moving it and, and purifying it and the worship to God on a regular basis, all the stuff that's involved in all of that, they're going to have less time to be about um, taking care of their own families by providing for them through the various ways they would provide in an agrarian society. So they're not going to be raising their cattle and the sheep and the grain and they're doing all the other stuff and the farming. And so the priests, as they minister on behalf of the people, their provision, the way that, that they were to take care of themselves and their family was going to be from the other 11 tribes. As they brought offerings to God, part of that portion was meant to be the provision to help with the, the payment of the priests. This is kind of the model in the New Testament for, um, for why... Biblically, there's a precedence for taking care of uh, those who minister on your behalf, for pastors, for, for uh, pastor, elder, bishop, um, preacher, teacher, whatever you call it. It's all synonymous terms, the same office, but that's why um, there is a precedence for churches to take care of their pastors because in the same way, you're, you're, you're taking care of somebody who's um, and providing for them as they're ministering on your behalf and equipping the saints and doing all the things we just memorized or we're memorizing in Ephesians chapter 4. This is the precedence for that, and it's argued throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to spend time, more time on that, but that's where this is coming from, built on this um, same premise. But the priests are provided, and, and what I think is beautiful about this is this, this portion for the priest, it says in verse 3, the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's offerings. You know, the tendency for us, being egocentric, okay, being, um, you know, focusing on 
um, autonomy and self-preservation and our things. It's kind of like the part I bring for God that I'm going to put on the offering. That's the part that really special for me. The other part is a negotiable, right? I'm going to bring the part for, for me, but the other part, eh, it's not, I mean, it's just going to help Aaron is, I mean, they don't need it. It's not really, they got plenty, you know, other people bring them. So I'm not going to really worry about it. But interestingly enough, in scripture, he says that this is the most holy part. I don't know why there's, I can make some speculations for that, but it's interesting. He doesn't call the part on the altar, which no, lo- no less is certainly no doubt is holy. But the part that you're giving to Aaron to, for their ministry um, is, and their provision is the most holy part of the Lord's food offering. And so he goes on and he gives us some specifications about different ways of baking it. And so when you bake it, you prepare it. There's three different options. You can bake it in an oven. So you, verse 4, the unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and wafers smeared with oil or wafers smeared with oil, they can be baked in an oven. So one option is you bake them in an oven. You're going to bring it as an offering and uh, baked in the oven. Now, that, that's going to be for the wealthier folks that have a little more uh, resources, whatever. That's a little more complex um, way of, of cooking. And so to, to bake it in, offering, I mean, in, in an oven was going to be, uh, that's going to be some folks in the camp that had a little more resources. They were, had a little more money. And then the next group, are those that are going to bring their offering and they're going to bake it on a griddle. Shall be fine flour unleavened mixed with oil and you're going to bake it on a griddle. And the third group is those who bring it and they cook it in a pan. And that's the most primitive. That's a word that's used to, for a simple, um, simple, very common way of cooking things in nomadic tribes in that region of the world is just a very basic, lightweight, easy way of cooking and preparing your food and carrying it with you, just a little basic pan for cooking. And so it's kind of like three different levels of cooking. If you're to correspond it to kind of our world, it's like maybe one's cooked in the oven, one's cooked on the grill, and one's on the little you know, wood fire you make on, in your backyard and you, you put the pan over the, the wood and you cook it that way. So it's kind of three different scales. Now what's interesting about this is all of them are considered sacred to God. All unleavened loaves were offered and pleasing to God, no matter how modest or simple one's resources were for baking the cakes, lest the priest resist an offering and say, you know, no, I, you, you need to bake the loaf. You, you really, it needs, this needs to be baked. This is, you cook this, did you cook this on a griddle? <laughs> You're always cooking on a griddle. Why don't you just Go to your neighbor's house and bake it on the oven. This is a little below. We don't want this guy. You, I would like a little better, better uh, offering. Can you go get some? No. God was making available for everybody the same fellowship with him, same fellowship with one another. It was not about who's more wealthy or closer to God or whatever. It was all about all of us coming humbly, bringing the little bit we have and giving it to the Lord. In the same way, the disciples, interestingly enough, were hanging out with Jesus one day and some little children came and they were talking to Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, Jesus interacting with them. And they said, listen, listen, listen. you don't need to bother the good teacher. Don't bother the rabbi with your trivial little children things. You need to go off over there. Run along, kids. Go along. Come on. Just run along. He's got more important kingdom things to do. He's got healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000. He's got more important things to do. You need to move along. And, and Jesus rebuked them. And he said, look, don't tell the children to not come to me. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter how you perceive yourself, how 
poor you see yourself, and we're not talking economically, but I think even more spiritually, regardless of how you think other people view you, it doesn't matter. God is saying, I want to invite you into fellowship with me. You bring what you have, and I will be thankful that I can have this fellowship with you and that you humbly are yielding all that you have, as little as it may be, to me. And so a portion was for the priest. Different ways that they could bring it. And then the portion was to be burnt on the altar in verse 9. The priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so a portion was brought on the altar, a portion for the priest again. Offering of the first fruits is also added in here. So this is an interesting little thing that's, that's a little different than the grain offering, but it's another element of it. So aside with bringing the grain offering to the Lord, there's another offering that they're invited and given some direction on how to do this. And this is when you, in an agrarian society, when you get your, uh, your, your bumper crop comes in or your, um, you, you, you uh, harvest your crop, you're to bring the first fruits to the Lord. It'd be the same thing as when you get a paycheck before you're taxed on it, okay? Before you deduct your taxes and your expenses and all the other things, and then they say, okay, what's left? Okay, wait, I got a little bit. He, what, what, in correlating it in our world, okay, he's saying before you, you take anything out of it, before you feed your family, before you feed your neighbors, before you do anything else with it, I want you to take the first fruits of that, a percentage of that, a portion of that, and I want you to bring that to the Lord. And what does that look like when they brought those first fruits, that first portion to the Lord? And so in verse 12, given some specifications, when you bring this to the Lord, it's an offering of first fruits. You may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, it shall be offered with salt. If you offer grain offerings of the first fruits of the Lord, you shall offer the, first, the, the grain offering, the first fruits with fresh, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain, put, them, uh, put oil on it, lay frankincense on it, and then the grain offering, um, put them all together, and then the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain, and some of the oil and all of its frankincense, and it is food a food offering for the Lord. Frankincense, by the way, was not part of the normal diet. That was not going to taste good, but it smells beautiful. And so it was supposed to go on the altar, so burn all the frankincense, bring the um, grain, bring the oil, the salt, put all those things together, take a portion of that, place it on the altar, all of the frankincense and a portion of the other stuff. The rest of it is for the priest. That portion of your first fruits is burnt in addition to the meal offering, in addition to the burnt offering we talked about last week. We'll look at in a second. All that's brought before the Lord. This is to be seasoned with salt, and it's to be roasted and crushed. Now, what is the significance of all these things? The remainder of our time, I want to look at understanding their fellowship offerings. This meal offering, this grain offering, is also otherwise known as a fellowship offering offering significant for a lot of reasons there's a whole lot of things that we can learn from this and glean from this and and be reminded about this but often you come together in fact this week our life group some of you tonight will meet and you will have a fellowship 
offering. You're going to come together and you're going to, you're going to break bread together and you're going to have some food together. And I want you to understand that it's not just eating a meal to, to be laid back and, and comfortable and enjoy fellowship with one another. It's more than that. It's, it's, you can think of it with this imagery and it'll elevate a simple common meal to an act of worship and you can invite God into that moment and realize, man, this is so significant. This is so massive what we're doing in this moment that we're eating food together. It's incredible. This is, this is gospel at its best when we understand the pictures of Leviticus and we carry them over thousands of years later. We realize, man, this is another act, a uh, moment for us just to thank God. To go beyond the God is good, God is great, thank you for a meal, you know, whatever prayer to say, man, this, this is a gospel moment. Something died, if you're eating meat, for us to have this meal. And some bread was crushed and ground and, and burnt and prepared with oil and salt and other things for us to have this meal. This is really a significant thing. These things speak of Christ. And we're reminded of Christ. In a similar way to when we, even we take the Lord's Supper and we do communion together it's a reminder of Christ's death, burial, resurrection for us that he's coming back again. It reminds us of his death on the cross for us. In the same way, every meal you take is an opportunity to preach the gospel. Ever thought about that? So, so how is that significant? Well, here's some thoughts. Our good works are really bad apart from the blood or the atoning work of Christ. Understand, first and foremost... That the good things you do really aren't that good apart from the atoning work of Christ. That's hard to get your mind around because we, we live in a culture that we're all about, man, I, I'm, really, I'm really not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I'm really not, I, I really try to do good. I try to do what's right for God. I try to do the things I'm supposed to do. I try to do this, try to do that. I try, I, 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 me, 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 work, work, work. Labor, labor, labor. Look at me. I'm great. I give away this. I serve that. I do this. I do that. Whatever. And it's all about me and my focus. And my, it's all about elevating myself, building a tower to God, if you will. It's self-exaltation. There's a problem with that. And that's what messed Cain up in Genesis chapter 4. If you look at Hebrews 11, 4, which is a great commentary. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Abel offered... To God, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. But why is it that God accepted Abel's offering, rejected Cain's offering? It just seems mean. It just seems mean. God hadn't even given them his law yet. They didn't even know what they were doing. Well, we don't know what God had shared with them yet. We don't have anything recorded with instructions, but clearly they understood that there was to be blood sacrifices because we see from that point forward, people sacrificing, um, building altars. Wherever they went, Abraham built an altar. A contemporary of Abraham would have been Job, and Job would build an altar. On his kid's birthday, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for his children. That is hundreds of years before the Levitical instructions and before exodus abraham's building an altar and job's building an altar and and, and isaac and and jacob they're all building altars sacrificing what, what where do they learn this stuff where do they get this stuff it was, it was began with genesis chapter three 
God provided a covering, the shedding of blood. And so in Leviticus, we know, we talked about last week, that within the animal, okay, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin because the life of the animal is in its blood. And because of our sinfulness against God, God will not accept us apart from coming with uh, a covering of blood. We have to be covered by his blood. And so the good things you do, if they are the product of your own self-righteousness, your attempts to please God by your religious involvement, by the good deeds you do, by those things, they are offensive to God. They're offensive to God. What, how could you say that? Well, I, let, me, let me tell you how I could say that. I, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 6 through 7, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean. Name of the series. We're all unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments or filthy rags, some translations say. You clean up the nastiest, most disgusting, most putrid, most nauseating mess with a bunch of rags, a bunch of towels, a bunch of garments, whatever. And you take that pile and let it fester for a little while till it just gets even more rank and nasty and stinks. And take that and bring it to God and lay it down before him and go, okay, God, here, here's what I got, what I have for you. I can assure you he's not going to be impressed. In fact, why don't you just try it um, this uh, Christmas, maybe, or for your kid's birthday or whatever. Just take some dirty, nasty towels or whatever you've used for cleaning their, their room and their bathrooms, maybe, you know, or, or wiping their, you know, or uh, cleaning up after they're doing whatever. You know, take that stuff and then put it in a box and, you know, maybe in a bag inside the box, probably like Ziploc and uh, maybe double Ziploc it. And then, and then let them open up and be like, I got a gift for you. You like it? See what happens. They're going to be offended, disgusted, nauseated, and you're going to have another mess to clean up. And, and that's what we bring to God. God looks at our best efforts on our best day with our best attempts of pleasing God in our own superficial, self-righteous works. And he goes, it's uh, nauseating to me, disgusting to me. They're like filthy garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon the name who rouses himself to take hold of you, God, for you have hidden your face from us and have, you, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That's your spiritual state before God with your own self-righteous attempts to please God. Over the past two weeks, I've had several interesting conversations with some different people that we would say were probably somewhat far from God, different levels. One of them coming from a different religious background that is a sect of Christianity that's really um, has a wrong belief in Jesus. Okay, a lot less right understanding of Jesus. Religiosity. They said, you know, it's interesting. Whenever I've talked to um, Christians, the, all I ever get from them is, is uh, oh, that's what you, you're this background and that background. Oh, you're, got, you're going to hell. 
And I'm always like, well, thanks. That helps. I appreciate that. And this friend was saying that, that they sincerely just want to understand. They sincerely want to understand truth, but nobody's given the consideration of having a conversation because they just reject them where they're at. Oh, you're, you're dirty. You don't believe the right. You're not on the right team. Another person told me this week, I sat down with um, a young person, said that, you know, yeah, my parents are a little spiritual, used to go to church, but I don't really do the church thing. I'm, I'm, not, really, I'm not religious. And why, why is that? What's going on? What happened? Well, I, I, I'm not religious because I, I just find the church to be very judgmental about um, different beliefs, different than theirs, and, and different um, gender identities, what this person said. And not judging a book by the cover, but that I was not surprised that gender identity was one of the things that they were offended by, but people's judgment of them. We went on to talk about the fact that, all, that, that those who are far from God because of their rebellion and their wickedness and their sin, and those, there's another category, there, there are those that are far from God because of those things. There's another category of people who are far from God because they're, they're incredibly religious and self-righteous and judgmental. And these people are no closer to Christ than these people. These people come to God with their offerings of their works and their fruit of their labors, and they bring it to God. And they say, look at what I have. Isn't this beautiful, God? Aren't you so thankful? And God turns his back to them and says, your good works are filthy rags, and they're offensive, and they are laced with leaven, which is a picture of sin. And they're, they're doused with honey, which is a picture of man's self-exalting glory. And so the leaven pictured sin and the honey pictured man's glory. And God's saying, you can't put that on the altar. I don't want that on the altar. That's offensive to me. I don't want your sin and I don't want your self-exalting glory. I don't want those things on the... They, they have a uh, fermenting effect on bread, leaven and honey. And so, so it, it won't last long. When you put that stuff in there, the, the, the clock starts ticking and the time that that is going to be useful, that loaf to be baked, is, is, is minimal. It's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to corrode and corrupt, and it's going to rot if you don't cook it fast. And if you do cook it, again, God's saying, I don't like those things because they picture sin, your glory. But yet he tells them to mix salt in it. Why is that? Because it's a different picture that pictures preservation. Salt had a preserving effect to it. It had a preserving element to it. It was going to preserve it. It was going to purify it. There's other imagery there. Our good works are really bad apart from the blood. Why is that? Well, because there was the offering speaks of life, our efforts, our character, the character of the worshiper. And there was no shedding of blood with this offering. So it's significant because it always followed another offering. There was no leaven, man's sin, man's glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, it said, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may make a new lump as you really are unleavened. This offering, to be acceptable to God, the grain offering, the second offering, to be acceptable for offer, for, to, before God, I always had to follow the first offering. What's the first offering? Well, it's the burnt offering. They were to bring blood was to be shed. They were to bring a burnt offering to be shed, blood to be shed. And on the basis of blood being shed now, because their faith and trust is in the blood that has been shed, their sins have been confessed and have been transferred into that animal, onto that animal that has been killed and consumed in the fire of God, that their sins have been removed. And now their works are available to glorify God because their trust is in 
the atoning work of Christ. They don't come glorying in their efforts. They come humbly through the blood. The problem with us is there's two parts of salvation that we tend to get confused. One is our justification. That you have been, when you repent and you trust in Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Remember, his covering for sin. When you do that, you are justified. You are seen by God as without sin. It's not because you don't still have the presence of sin in a sinful nature. God's working on that in your life. But he removes the penalty of sin from your life. That's justification. And then that follows with a life of sanctification. And in sanctification, this is the process of which we're doing things and we're working on, on praying and reading the word and trying to walk with God and grow and do things and live a life that glorifies God. And in our um, efforts under the blood of Christ, fueled by the Holy Spirit, we are glorifying God in our sanctification. This is the same reason why uh, John chapter John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, there's a woman brought to Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. And this woman brought to Jesus, uh, they, they, the Pharisees bring her and say, okay, Jesus, what do you think we should do? She was caught in adultery. She's been busted. And they're all holding rocks in their hands. What do you think we should do with her? Answer, we need to kill her because she's broken the law. And Jesus says, okay, he starts to ride in the ground. Listen, why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, whoever's without sin, you start throwing the rocks. You, you start first. And so people debate, what did he write in there? Did he write forgiven? Did he start listing their specific sins? Did he start writing the Ten Commandments? Many think he did. Whatever he did, they realized they are not in a place to judge her because their works are filthy rags. And then he looks to the woman, probably covered in tears, broken, thinking that she's about to meet her death as she has been publicly humiliated in a way that none of us would ever want on anybody. And he says, Woman, where's your judge? Which really was him. They're gone. All right, well, then I don't judge you either. And I think that's where maybe he wrote forgiven in the sand. We don't know. but And then he said an interesting thing. That's justification. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. But then he goes on and he says, go and sin no more. That's sanctification. The problem in our religious <clears throat> environment, often in the South even, in churches we've grown up and we've seen and we've witnessed, is we have a whole bunch of people that come to God in the process of sanctification, thinking that their sanctification, their good works, can come before the blood. And they think that their good works glorify God and makes God excited and happy. And God's just so excited because they do good things for people and do all these things, but they don't come with their faith and trust in the atoning work of Christ and with humility, pouring spirit going, I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve the blood of Christ being shed for me. And I don't really have, even the good stuff I do, I have bad motives. I get mad when people don't write me thank you letters and they're not appreciative of it or they don't give me back. And I, I struggle with my flesh and my pride in this and whatever. But nonetheless, I'm going to serve unto the Lord. I'm thankful for the blood of Christ and I want to glorify him in the way I live my life. And so justification has to precede sanctification. The problem with Cain's offerings, it was founded, <clears throat> it had to be found in a blood sacrifice then it would have been fine. Our acts of charity and good deeds do nothing to qualify us for eternity. They do not earn us 
a standing before God. Our good works do not act as a substitute for the atoning work of Christ, the covering of the blood of Christ. This is precisely the sin of Cain. Uh, Bonner, a Puritan writer, he said it this way. He presented himself and his property, Cain, to God as if they had been under no curse and there was no need to qualify or wash them with a blood sacrifice. Only the blood can qualify our actions and make them pleasing to God, our good works. The second and third thoughts, no shedding of blood. The fruit of our lives must be the Spirit's work, not the flesh. This is where the imagery of the oil comes in. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread of heaven, but the Father gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him. And so two images I want to leave you with. One is the bread of life. It's meant to be shared. The second, the first, that's the second. The first one is the fruit of our lives must be the Spirit's work, not the flesh. And so fruit of our lives must be the Spirit. It was a mixed oil and salt. And so 1 Corinthians 3.13 is a good cross-reference. Each one's work will be manifested for the day. We'll disclose it. The future is going to be a day where the things you do are going to be revealed. They're going to be tested by fire. And if they're done in the flesh, not in the blood uh, surrendered and built on the foundation of the blood of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, then when the fire tests it, if this work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But those who have built on the flesh, not on the foundation of Christ, it will be consumed. That doesn't mean they go to hell, but it does mean that those believers are one day going to speak before the Lord and all of their labor and all their works that they did in their own empowerment, with their own efforts, with their own flesh, will just be consumed. It'll be erased. And all the good things they did with their own power. I was going to go, I, I, where, where, where's the stuff? You said you did a lot of good things in the time I gave you on the earth. Where's that stuff? Where, where is it at? But if it's done by having your faith in Christ and allowing God's Spirit to work through you, then it will remain. That's why even the Great Commission, when Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth to tell them the gospel so that the multitudes will be <clears throat> have the opportunity to repent and be restored to me and have their sins forgiven and spend eternity Uh, not spend eternity separated from me in hell, but in my presence in heaven. This is a really important message. It's so critical that the rest of your lives need to be about leveraging their lives to proclaim this message. But don't go yet. Before you go, just go and get up in a room, pray, and I'm going to send some help for you. And they go and they pray, and then God sends the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, then they go. The Spirit empowered the mission. The Spirit empowers our good works. The Spirit fuels everything we do. So we can't put sanctification before justification. We need to understand the Holy Spirit fuels what we do and qualifies our efforts before God. Jesus, even when he goes 
during the temptation out into the wilderness after his baptism goes empowered by the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus. Isn't that incredible? So Jesus, just like us, he's God, but he lays aside his power and he trusts the Holy Spirit to lead him in everything he did, including the resurrection, was by the power of God. The Holy Spirit, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, led Jesus, directed Jesus, empowered Jesus. And in the same way, we have that available to us. Our last thought is that God has given us a bread to share with the world. And it is the bread of life. And there's a world out there that is in desperate need of the bread of life. And so we come, number one, through the blood. Empowered by God's Spirit, the oil of God's Spirit. Directed, empowered, led by God's Spirit to share with the world the bread of life. What's interesting about this whole passage of Scripture is when they were to bring this offering, we see in Leviticus chapter 6, they were to eat it. They were to eat a portion of it together at the tabernacle. They were to come together, which is why it's called a fellowship offering. And so we to come together, and in these moments as we worship, we're not consuming and eating anything, but we are fellowshipping with the bread of life. We've been eating of the bread of life. We're going to go out from here, and you're probably going to go catch lunch or whatever is going to be going on the rest of your day. But understand, you go with the bread of life in your hands, in your possession. Share it with people. People need it. They need the bread of life, the bread of heaven. And so this image is an incredible, beautiful picture of our need for Christ and the bread of life that has been provided that we can have fellowship with God and with one another through the offerings that he has provided, through the blood of Christ, empowered by his spirit for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us apply these truths to our lives, that you would help us to not hoard your gracious gift of salvation, of your spirit, but that we would share it willingly, actively, intentionally with the world around us that is starving for truth, that is filled with lies, that needs the hope that, that their works that they know will not get them to God can be laid down and they could surrender. They're little, they're nothing. Come as they are and God will forgive them and restore them. Father, help us to grow in our understanding of these powerful truths. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.